Well, as human beings, we like to think we know ourselves really well. Studies are showing more and more that that's actually not the case, that, that we have a level of, of self-deception that we carry around, that we tend to think we're, we're more generous than we actually are, we're, we're maybe a little more holier than we actually are, that we're maybe nicer, that we're more kind than we actually are. In fact, psychologists, as they've studied this idea, they've put a label to it. They call it the holier-than-thou syndrome. And uh, you thought that was just in your extended family. <laughs> it turns out it's actually all of us, right? It's just sort of a, a part of our human condition. Each of us believes in some way that we're kind of a little bit better than the average person, right? You know, we're, we're not average. We're, we're maybe a little more moral. We're more kind. We're more altruistic. The problem is we can't all be right, <laughs> So there have been, you know, all these studies out there sort of studying this idea. And there was one that caught my eye in 2001, two professors from Cornell. They, they studied this, and this is the quote going into the study. This is what one of the professors said. We knew something had to be wrong when the average person thinks he or she's a better person than the average person. <laughs> when the majority of Americans consider themselves to be members of an elite moral minority, Okay, right? This doesn't add up. We wanted to know whether people feel holier than thou because they underestimate others' moral goodness or because they overestimate their own moral goodness. Guess which one it turned out to be? Study shows time and time again, we have a pretty good idea of what the average person will do. So it's like a prediction around like, let, let's say you had an opportunity to give to this charity. How much money do you think the average person would give? We're actually pretty good at predicting that accurately. How much money do you think you would give right? We, we say, oh, it's going to be more than average. Well, when that opportunity actually comes, you know, a month or two later, they followed up with these people in the study and gave them that opportunity. They didn't donate what they thought they would, right? They actually donated exactly what the average person would donate. Turns out, in more ways than we like to admit, we are all average. And so there's a part of you and a part of me that hears that, and we're like, well, may be true for him or her, not true for me. I'm not average. That's it, that's it right? That's the holier-than-thou syndrome. None of us like to be average. So here are all the areas that these academic studies have shown that there's a gap between how you perceive yourself and what's actually true about you. We tend to think we're more generous than we actually are. I've already mentioned that one. We tend to think we're less prejudiced than we actually are. We tend to think we're nicer, more kind, then we actually turn out to be in real life. Isn't that interesting? This next one was really scary to me. We all tend to think we're more attractive than we actually are. Like, like they asked, you know, all these people, rate yourself on a scale of one to 10, and they had other people rate them, and it was a gap. Let's just say it that way. <laughs> and then this last one is maybe particularly interesting for us as believers in, in Jesus, and, and even it relates to our text this morning. But, but these secular academic studies have shown that we're all more prone to temptation when it presents itself than we think we will be ahead of time. Like we're, we're not as strong against temptations as we anticipated. It's fascinating to read about all of this. The big idea is there is indeed a gap. You know, generalizing, typically speaking, there's a gap between how we perceive ourselves and what's actually true in real life. We overestimate some things about ourselves, and I think this is a problem. Now, why is it a problem? If it's just human nature, why is it a problem? Well, we're going to see why in our text today. In fact, I'd go ahead and invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. 
Now, not only do I think that overestimating our own strength and, and capacity and ability and, and, and generousness, et cetera, is, is a problem, you'll also see in this text that it's nothing new. Like, this has been going on for at least 2,000 years. Like, the disciples are in the same boat with us, metaphorically, right? They're overestimating their own abilities just as we do. And there's something really important we're going to learn as we sort of take a look at the disciples and their self-deception. Now, to give you a little context before I jump into the text, if you were here last week, um, Michael did a great job talking about the Passover supper. You know, the Lord's Supper, we call it now, with Jesus breaks the bread, says it's my body, he gives the cup, says it's my blood. The disciples knew this was something important, right? It was something intimate, it was something meaningful, but they didn't fully understand it. They didn't understand why they needed the body and the blood of Jesus. And they're about to find out. So I'm going to start back in verse 26, and uh, that's the last verse of last week's text, and that'll kind of be a springboard to get us into our text this morning. Mark 14, beginning 26. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So this is immediately after the dinner, 27. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Judas had already departed during the supper. Remember, God, Jesus said, listen, one of you is going to betray me. You know, and, and Judas is sort of you know, identified as that one. He gets up and leaves. So the disciples already know that one has fallen away. Now Jesus is saying, you're all going to fall away. And then he quotes Zechariah 13, 7, which would have been a prophecy familiar to them, but they never would have imagined it was pointing to them. And so their immediate reaction here is going to be the same as your reaction if a really close friend of yours came to you and said, listen, uh, I know we've been friends for a while, but, but I just have this feeling that when the going gets tough, you're not going to be there for me. You're going to say, that's not true. I'm going to be there for you. Like, are you doubting my loyalty? You know, this is exactly what's happening, I think, in the hearts of the disciples. So listen to how Peter, you know, of course, Peter's the first one to speak, of course. Listen to how he responds, verse 29. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Do you hear the holier-than-thou syndrome? <laughs> it's like these other chumps, your other disciples, you know, they might fall away, not me. You know, I'm more loyal to you, I'm more faithful than you, I'm more uh, to you, I'm more committed than all of them are. You see, this is what's going on in Peter's heart. He's basically saying that prophecy you quoted, fine. You know, I guess I can't argue with God's word, right? But that doesn't apply to me, right? That, that, that's all them. You know, it's like, it's like all of us that we go to church week in, week out, and the sermon's always about our wife. <laughs> it's always about our husband. <laughs> it's always about our kids or our best friend. Man, I, I wish so-and-so was here today. They really needed to hear the sermon, right? It's never about me, <laughs> Now, th th this is this self-deception that, that is at, at play here in Peter. Now, um, Jesus is about to take it up a notch with Peter. Listen to this, verse 30. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you. It's like, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not playing with you, Peter. Truly I say to you, this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. So Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, I know what you think, but you got to understand something, bro. This is going down tonight. 
Like, and, and not just one time. There's going to be three distinct times before morning comes that you're actually going to deny me, that you even know me. And of course, Peter's not having any of it. He's going to dig in, verse 31. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you, exclamation point. And pause there for just a second. Jesus kind of went all in with his chips and Peter's like, well, I don't care if you are the son of God, you're wrong. I'm going all in, I'm calling that, right? Let's see who's right. I, I will go to the grave before I will deny you. How is it possible for Peter to be this self-deceived, this unaware, okay? And can you at least imagine, all right, if Peter was so sincere in his belief that he was strong, is it not possible that you may be overestimating your own strength as well. I think that's true of everybody. In fact, l listen to the rest of the disciples. They're going to jump on Peter's bandwagon, the rest of uh, the second half of verse 31. And they all were saying the same thing also. So this wasn't just a, a Peter problem. You know, this wasn't just something in Peter's personality that was brash and he overestimated his own faithfulness and his ability. This is a human condition. All right, this is what these, you know, 2,000 years later, these Cornell professors are basically saying. There's something in us that tends to overestimate ourselves in certain areas. We're all self-deceived. So if a good friend comes to you and they say, listen, because I care about you, I love you, I, I want to I point out a blind spot in your life. There's, there's something you're doing, something you're saying that you're just not even aware of, and, and I want to just mention it to you because I love you. Your first instinct is not going to be like, oh man, you're so right. <laughs> your instinct's going to be like, I don't see that. That's why it's called a blind spot, right? We can't see it. It's like back over here. It's like, I, it's invisible to us, but it's there. It's there, and Jesus is, is helping these disciples by saying, listen, you don't know yourselves as well as you think you do, but notice he's already basically saying, it's gonna be okay. You're gonna fall away, but I'm gonna be raised up, and I'll see you in Galilee. It's like you're weaker than you think, but it's gonna be okay. I'm gonna stand in the gap, and we're gonna be together again. Like, he's already anticipating the forgiveness he's gonna offer them for abandoning him on this side over here. You see how beautiful that is, that theme of grace? In fact, this is the theme of the entire passage. Right? So part one is what we've already covered. Part two is in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're about to get there. Same theme in part one and part two. Here's how I would summarize it. Jesus knows these men better than they know themselves. He says to them, you're weaker than you think. You're gonna stumble and fall. You're gonna deny me, but it's going to be okay. I'm going to make it okay. And we're going to meet up again in Galilee when all this is over. Here's what Mark is drawing your attention to. Pay attention to what Mark is drawing your attention to. It's the weakness and the unfaithfulness of the disciples on the one hand contrasted with the grace and faithfulness of Jesus on the other. That's the gap, right? That's the real gap that we need to be cognizant of. Our weakness, Jesus' strength and grace. Our unfaithfulness, Jesus' 
faithfulness and forgiveness. That's what this whole text is centered on. Now, let's dig into the Garden of Gethsemane, and you're, you're going to see how that same theme is played out, you know, e- even exponentially now, in the Garden. So let's pick the text back up in verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane. It's a significant name. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Now, Gethsemane was an area, in, in fact, we, we know almost exactly where it was within a couple hundred yards, even to this day. There's an area when you descend out of Jerusalem into the Kidron Valley before you go up on the Mount of Olives. Uh, there, there's olive trees all over the place, right? You got the Mount of Olives and you have this valley and there's still olive groves right there to this day. And the name Gethsemane is significant, a Greek word kind of borrowed from a Hebrew term, and, and it, it means the, the, the olive press. So this is the garden or the place of the, of the oil or the olive press. So what we know about this olive grove is there would have been an olive press there, thus the name. Now, to understand why this is significant, you have to understand what an olive press looked like. It was this round trough, and there was this huge round stone that would turn within the trough. And so you would pour the olives in the trough, and then you would roll this heavy stone, and it would press those olives down, heavy, heavy stone to the place that the olive oil would run out along this trough. They'd collect it in, uh, in, in baskets. Actually, what they would do is, is they would scoop up the pulp in baskets. They would collect the oil in jars. They'd take the baskets of pulp, and instead of throwing away the pulp, they would put even more weight on it. And they would squeeze and squeeze and squeeze this pulp until they got every drop of oil out of it. This is the place of the oil press that Jesus is going to experience the greatest pressure of his life. When literally the, the, the idea of the weight of the sins of the world is going to be laid on him with such heaviness and it's going to press him down and you will see how he's going to respond to this. In fact, he's already being so open and, and vulnerable with his disciples, is he not? My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. I think sometimes we forget that, that Jesus, in, in his fully human nature, right? Fully human, fully divine, he experiences emotion, right? Great grief, great sadness, great joy as well. The whole range of human emotions. And by the way, he didn't leave his human nature on earth when he ascended into heaven later, right? To this day, he sits at the right hand of the Father, fully human, fully divine, still experiencing great emotion, I believe. Now, when you think about this idea of someone whose soul is so deeply grieved that they, that, that they feel like they're going to die, I don't know that you could describe a heavier emotion than that. And I was, I was trying to, to think about my own life, and, you know, I've, I've had struggles and, and really low points. Uh, I know you all have too. I don't think I've ever quite been there. Some of you have. Some of you have been through such difficult, 
weighty things that you thought, maybe you're there now, you think, that you'll never come up for air. My soul is grieved to the point of death. And I want you to know, if you've been there or if you are there, Jesus was there. He went there ahead of you so he can be there with you. And maybe for some of you in the room, you don't need to hear anything else in the message, but that's what you need to remember. He was there. He understands. He knows that emotion. He was there in this place. Now, let's keep going in our text, and we'll see the specific prayer that Jesus is going to pray. It's remarkable. Verse 35, he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. 36. And he was saying, quote, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is one of the most remarkable prayers in the Bible. It's one of the most remarkable moments in Jesus' life, and and I want to dig into it. I I really want to unpack this with you. I've got about two pages worth of notes on these three verses, Uh, but I'm going to run through them as, as briefly as I can, but there's some meat here for us. The first thing you need to see is there's a little bit of parallelism going on in 35 and 36. There's two metaphors that Jesus is using, the hour and the cup. And both times he's saying, look, if it's possible, may the hour pass. I know it's possible, so would you let the cup, I don't have to drink the cup, the hour, the cup, what are these metaphors about? Because they're a lot richer and deeper than than what we first think. So let's talk about them. Number one, the hour. When you see that phrase in scripture, it almost always refers to the time of judgment, right? So there is a coming time of judgment. The way that I would describe it is the set time that God has ordained to judge the sins of the world. And Jesus is saying there's something about that judgment day that I'm going to bear. Is it possible for that to pass by me? Now, some of you can identify with this emotion because you've had something in your life that you were dreading, that you knew was coming, Um, maybe a a, a surgery that was a really big deal for you or a loved one. And and it it was a date on the calendar, two weeks out. Now it's one week out. Now it's seven days out. Now it's five days out. It's two days out. It's the the night before the surgery. And your prayer is, is there any way that this hour can pass by me? Um, I I talked to a a couple uh, after the first service. She was about to send her husband over to a, a war zone. And they've known this date's on the calendar. It's gotten closer and closer and closer. Maybe for some of you, there, there, there's an imminent death that was coming or, or, or a breakup of a relationship that's coming. It's just, it, it's, you, you just want time to stop. Like, is it possible for this hour to pass by and me not to have to actually go there? That's what Jesus is asking the Father. Now, secondly, the, the second metaphor, the cup. This is deeply symbolic. It, it's a... It's a, a, a a metaphor from the Old Testament, we, we think of it as just, okay, that just means something hard, right? It's an image of something hard. No, it's, it's that, but more. In Psalm 60, also Isaiah 51, also Jeremiah 49, the cup always represents the wrath of God stored up against the enemies of God. To be 
drank at the appointed hour. In other words, the judgment day, this cup contains the wrath of God. It's going to be poured out on the enemies of God. Jesus is saying, listen, do I have to drink that cup? Now, um, we don't like to talk about God's wrath, right? I, I kind of think we, we need to, I think God's wrath gets a little bit of a bad rap and we need to talk about it more. I want to explain why. We, we think of God's wrath as just sort of you know, this God that just like is angry so he just zaps people, you know? That's not the concept of wrath. Uh, I didn't understand the concept of wrath really until I had kids. <laughs> Actually, that didn't get a laugh in the previous two services. <laughs> but it's not the way that you think it is, right? Here's what I meant. I had those three little girls, all right? So 12, 9, and 6 are their ages now. And of course, you know, they're not perfect. But the idea that there are people out there that would want to harm them, that, that, that would want to, to squeeze the life out of them for whatever twisted reason someone could have for that. Y'all, that's a reality of our broken creation. There are people out there that would want to harm my daughters if they could. You know what that stirs up in me? I'm feeling it right now. Something that I did not know was capable in me before I had those daughters. You start to see, here's the principle. Without love, there is no wrath. Now just imagine the objects of God's love that have been bent and broken and twisted by sin that began in the garden, the first garden of Eden, when the serpent came to steal kill and destroy. You see, God's wrath is stored up against his enemies. God's wrath is stored up against those who would want to harm and, and kill and destroy his children. And this is the cup of wrath that Jesus faces. It's bubbling over. It's boiling over. Have you ever been aware of a great injustice and you just want God to rise up and make things right. If he did not promise to do that, he would not be a loving God. He will set things straight on this broken, twisted creation, men and women. There will be a just and righteous judgment. This is the wrath of God, and it's in this metaphorical cup. And Jesus, Jesus is going to be the one to drink it. Now, in one of those Old Testament passages, it describes the cup of God's wrath as the cup of staggering. And notice here, when Jesus is praying, he's flat on the ground. You didn't lay on the ground in, in that culture to pray. You stood up to pray. See, Jesus knows he's going to have to drink the cup of staggering, and, and it is flattening him on his face. He is staggering under the weight of it. And this is the son of God. This is the one that calmed the storm and raised Lazarus from the grave, all right? This is the weight of this. This is the judgment. Jesus is gonna say, listen, is there any other way? But then he comes to this incredible prayer at the end. But even though it's weighty, if I must drink it, I will drink it. Not my will, but your will, he says. Now, I've been thinking about this for a long time this week. I have come to believe that this is where the victory was won. 
Yes, it was one on the cross. Yes, it was ultimately one in the empty tomb. But, but all that had to start with a, a determination that is rock solid on the point of the Son of God, that he would go through exactly what was designed for him to go through. Right? As, as terrible as it, as it was. In fact, most theologians would say, listen, it wasn't the physical suffering that caused Jesus to stagger in this moment. It was the idea that, that he has been eternally in perfect union with the Father. And because that cup of wrath is going to come on him, he will endure separation from the Father. That's what he's facing. He says, if there's any other way, but if there's not any other way, I'll do it. Because it's about you. It's about your will. It's not about what I want. You see, this is a remarkable, remarkable prayer. Even in his agony, he is steadfast. His decision is never in doubt. He's struggling under the weight of it because he's fully human, but his decision is never in doubt. Not what I will, but what you will is the anchoring phrase in the prayer that everything else is bound by. And so I think this is where the real battle was won. There's a scene in the, uh, it's the opening scene from The Passion of the Christ. You know, that Mel Gibson film. It's been a little while now. Many of you in the room have probably seen it. The, the, the scene, the, the movie begins in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is, is praying, right? He's praying. He's, he's, he's visibly shaken. We know he was sweating drops of blood from, from a, a parallel account, a different gospel. And, and so in this movie, they, they take some artistic license and they actually have a snake crawling near his feet in this garden. That should automatically bring your mind back to Genesis chapter 3 where there was another garden and there was another snake. And, and, and who, who was sort of embodied in that snake? Satan, the deceiver. And so just as there was a test in the first garden for the first Adam and he failed, there's now a test in the second, or for the second Adam in a different garden, the Garden of Gethsemane now, right? And so I actually like the artistic license that the movie makers take because that snake is metaphorically crawling on his feet. And after Jesus finishes that part of his prayer, here's what he does. And Genesis 3 says the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And I think this is where the victory was won. Jesus' resoluteness, not my will, but your will, Father, no matter what. And the enemy was defeated with that prayer. I think theologically, that's actually what is happening here. Now, we're, we're gonna go on and we're gonna see this incredible contrast between sort of the faithfulness and resoluteness of Jesus, even in his agony, and the lack of faithfulness of his disciples. Let's read about that, verse 37. And he came and found them, the, the three disciples, sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Now here's this theme emerging again. Listen, you're weaker than you think you are, but it's okay. I love this phrase Jesus gives, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's so gracious. It's like he's already anticipating forgiveness. It's like, listen, I get it. I get it, you're willing. <laughs> like you wanted to stay awake. You wanted to stay faithful to me and you're not gonna wanna deny me, but you're gonna do it anyway because the flesh is weak. 
you see. We're going to come back to this phrase, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak in our application because it's the key phrase in the text. Let's, let's finish it out and then we'll get to some lessons. Verse 39. And he went away again and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. Right? Same, same song, second verse. For their eyes were very heavy. Yeah, I love that little detail. They did not know what to answer him. Right? That, that's exactly how I feel every time I fail God. You know? I did not know what to answer him. Verse 31. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And you know exactly who that is. So these last couple verses sort of bring the passage full circle. Um, the, the, the idea behind this entire text that the disciples are unfaithful while Jesus is faithful, the disciples are weak while Jesus is strong, is the idea that I hope that you get away from this. And, and Judas has already fallen away. He's about to show up and, and, and lead the, the, the temple guards to arrest Jesus. But the rest of them are about to fall away as well. The hour has come. The answer from the Father is, you cannot avoid the hour. It is what you've been born for. And you must drink the cup. And the remarkable thing is Jesus says, yes, yes, I will do it. Now, what are some lessons? Here's what I want to do. I want to go back to the, the, the core idea. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's what I want to camp out on. And, and I think this phrase, when you really think about it, it does it not describe your experience? <laughs> I know it describes my experience. I think this describes every follower of Jesus like we want to obey him, but we don't do it as well as we wish. You know, we want to be a, a, a you know, good Christian. I don't like that phrase, but, but we, want to, we want to be devoted and we, we, we want to serve, we want to obey, yet we fall, yet we fail. Not just once in a while, right? Every day we fall short of the glory of God. And that's just true in all of us. So what are the implications? If the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, what are some lessons for us from that? Well, Number one, I think this one's already obvious to you from the message so far, but lesson number one, we are not as strong as we think we are. We need to remember that. We're not as strong as we think we are. Message of our culture is you need to seize your power. You're as strong as you want to be. You need to be independent. You need to be solid. You don't need to depend upon anybody. You don't need to be needy. You have everything in you right here to accomplish whatever you want, to be as powerful as you want. Now, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? There, there are times in, in your life that you need to be reminded that, that, that you've got more strength even than may, you may think at that moment. But by and large, we are not as strong as we think we are. We're not as strong against temptation as we wish we were and think we are. We're not as, as obedient as we wish we are and sometimes we think we are. We need to learn to think theologically, which often means learning to think counterculturally. And so let me give you some ideas that'll sort of reframe this idea of, of, of you're not as strong as you think you are. John 15, verse five. And Jesus had said this to his disciples right before they went into the garden. This is back at the dinner. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Okay, not the other way around. He says, he who abides in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. Listen to this. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Now, Jesus isn't like dissing them. He's not knocking them. He's just saying in your human condition, you weren't designed to be independent. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 7, one, one of my favorite passages. Paul's writing this. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, or, or you might have heard it said in jars of clay, okay? Treasure, you never put treasure in something as fragile as, as a little earthen vessel, as a jar of clay, right? It's too susceptible to breaking. It's exactly what God did. He put this magnificent treasure, right, of relationship with God and knowledge of the gospel, he put it in us, jars of clay. Why would he do that? Well, the verse continues, so that, so that, the surpassing greatness and power will be of God, not of ourselves. And then uh, also in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Now, why is it important for us to think rightly about our strength or our lack thereof? Well, if what Scripture teaches is true and what even modern, you know, academic secular studies teaches is true, that we tend to overestimate ourselves in certain areas, then one very important example is when we face up against temptation. Notice that Jesus is calling that out in Peter. He says, you got to keep watching, keep praying, lest you fall into temptation. Peter's about to. Jesus knows it. Peter doesn't know it. Peter thinks he's stronger than he actually is. Now, I want to dig into this area just for a minute, right? Um, we all know, and many of us know stories in the room. You've read headlines, um, but, but, but it's a reality for all of us personally that, that is, it's not that difficult to wreck a marriage, to wreck a reputation, to wreck a family, to wreck a life, to wreck a career by falling to temptation, what we don't realize is that every time you read about one of those stories, you know what they all had in common? Every single one of those people all thought they had that secret sin in their life under control right up until the very moment that it ate them alive. They were all self-deceived. You see, with sin... You know, if, if, if you think you're a little stronger than you actually are, then what happens, and like some of you are living here right now, what I'm about to describe, some of you are living here right now. You walk right up to the edge <laughs> and, and you say, yeah, I, I, I kind of mess around with this and I, I kind of know where I can go and where I can't go. I'm not, so not going to take that last step off the cliff, but I can hang out right here. Kind of is a thrill. It is, literally, right now for me. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, I'm right on the edge here. Listen, listen, you're not as strong as you think you are. We can't be messing around right here, right? That's what happens every time somebody wrecks a family, wrecks a life, wrecks a marriage, wrecks a career, wrecks a future. They're just saying, listen, I got this. I got this. You're not as strong as you think you are. Listen to Paul again in 1 Corinthians 10. So, it's like he's speaking to us in 2017. Listen to this. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. And then the right verse after that, a lot of hope in this next verse. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Listen, 
Don't misinterpret that verse. The way out is not standing here and saying like, God's going to give me enough strength, right? I'm not going to tip over because he's going to give me enough strength. That's not the way out. You know what the way out is? It's a resource outside of yourself that you grab onto and pulls you back, you see. The, The way out is always outside of you. It's not in you because you're not as strong as you think you are. And that leads us to lesson number two. If that's right, we're not as strong as we actually think we are, that we are self-deceived. Here's what this means. We must learn to live dependently on something outside of us. We must learn to live dependently on something outside of us. Let me explain what I mean. When Jesus tells Peter, keep praying, why does he tell him to pray? What is prayer when you really break it down? It's a cry for help. Now, it's a lot more than that, right? But the base, the the, the most instinctive prayer in a human being, whether they believe in God or not, is when their life is on the line, they, they, they look up and they say, help, God help. Why do they pray that? It's because they know they don't have the resources They know if they don't get something from outside of them to come in and rescue them and pull them back, they're gone, right? So Jesus is saying, Peter, you're not as strong as you think, so keep praying, keep asking for help, even when you don't realize how close you are to temptation, you see. Now, some of you were here a couple months back when when I was here with you and and we were preaching from Mark, I think it was chapter 9. It was the story where the disciples wanted to cast this demon out of the little boy and they couldn't do it. Um, they, they tried to do it. And they couldn't do it. The demon wouldn't come out. It's like the demon was stronger than them. And then Jesus comes down from the mountain of transfiguration. He shows up and boom, you know, he casts the demon out. Later, the disciples say, what's wrong with us? Why couldn't we cast the disciple or the demon out? Why couldn't we do it? You remember what Jesus said? You did not pray. This is the exact same idea, right? Jesus is reminding Peter, keep praying You're not as strong as you think you are. You need help. You need to ask for resources. You don't have it in you to do what you think you can do. Peter, you're not as strong as you think you are. Therefore, keep praying. Keep watching so that you do not fall into temptation. In other words, he's saying live dependently on a higher power source, Peter. You need it. You need something outside of yourself. And this pushes against the cultural dynamic that you don't need anything apart from what's right here to to live your life. Men and women, friends, I love you, and I must tell you that is not true. It is not how you were designed. Neediness, at least as it relates to neediness for God, is not a design flaw in you. It's a feature. It's how you were made. You were not designed to be self-operating. You were designed to stay plugged into a power source, right? Right? That the spirit of God in you as a believer in Jesus Christ is the breath that you breathe. It is the strength that you have. It is that outside source that you must be plugged into in order to stand, in order not to stumble, in order not to fall away. And so think about sin this way with me, men and women. Sin, every sin, I don't care how little or how big, you know, little sins, big sins, not really true, but we classify them that way. Sin is always a step away from dependence on God. It's always a step toward independence from God. Sin can be a lot more than that, but it's never less than that. 
The problem with that is every time you step away from dependence on God, you're sabotaging yourself. You're violating your design. Right? You're like like a a, a lamp that wants to shine without being plugged into the power source. I don't need to be plugged in. I don't need anything apart from me. I'm beautiful the way I am. I'm self-determining. I'm strong the way I am. It's a useless lamp. Right? We sabotage ourselves when we step away from dependence on God. That's what happens every time we sin. Now, this doesn't mean that God has not gifted you with a will and actual freedom. Like, don't take it that far, okay? But here's what you'll find. You'll find that you flourish when you exercise your will, not independently, but within the context of a dependent relationship on God. That's how he designed you. You need to stay connected to the life source. That's true freedom. Now, how do you know whether or not you're operating independently from God or dependently on God? I hate to tell you this. The answer is in your prayer life. How much you pray, how little you pray. The things you pray about are the things that you recognize you need help in. The things that you don't pray about are the things you say, I think I got this. Right? That's just true. It just shows up in our prayer life. And, and that's convicting for me, likely convicting for you as well. Prayer is, in essence, an expression of dependency. Our prayerlessness reveals our own sense of self-sufficiency. I think we need to repent of that. I, I think we just need to own it and say, man, God, I, I really live a lot more independently from you than, than I actually believe I should be, and would you help me? That in and of itself is a prayer of dependence. Did you hear it? Would you help me? Would you help me even in my independent attitude? Would you help me? This is a good prayer. Now, Jesus models this idea of dependence beautifully for us. Even though he is God himself, even though he is the second person in the Trinity, he he uses this little title for his father. He says, Abba. Now, in Aramaic, which was the the spoken language of the the Hebrew people at that time, right? In Aramaic, Abba is sort of the equivalent of of an English dad or or maybe Papa, right? it's, um, It's a little bit stunning to the people around him that Jesus would address God that way. I mean, calling him father is one thing, but calling him dad, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable, right? Like, do you see what's embedded in that little term, Jesus is relating in in, in a posture of dependence upon his dad, upon his father. So so even though, and you know, Philippians tells us, even though equality with God was something to be grasped, he emptied himself and he lived a life of full dependence on his father. And so we, you know, grown adults, most of you in the room, we outgrow our neediness for our earthly parents our dependence on them, that's part of maturing. It's healthy. You never outgrow your dependence on your heavenly father. You think you do, but you never do. And that's our last lesson. Our last lesson is this. You will never outgrow your need for grace. That's a really good thing. We tend to think about grace as the starting point of the Christian life, right? Grace is what gets you saved. 
And then from there, we tend to think, all right, now I've, I've got to study, I've got to be really obedient, and I've got to do these things. You know, please do, those are good things. But you never do those things apart from grace. Grace is not just the starting point of the Christian life. It's the starting point, it's the finish line, and it's every single mile marker in between, right? We are driven to obey through grace. We respond out of hearts of gratitude from grace. We are fueled by grace. Now, how is it that the Father can show us grace? Because the Son drank the cup. That's the reason you can stand. That's the reason I can stand. Never forget that. You're not as strong as you think you are. You are dependent upon the graciousness of your heavenly father. And he has raised you up and smiles at you because of the obedience of the son. And so therefore, we live by grace. So what is our response to all of this? I think it's a simple prayer. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. And so I'm going to pray that with you, and then we're going to sing that prayer to close our service. If you'd bow your heads with me. Our Father, we do proclaim that we need you. And I pray, God, that for the men and women in this room, that would not just be lip service this morning. We would have a, a degree of humility in us that would bow our knee and say, I need you not just once, not just once a week, once a year. I need you all the time, all the time. I need you in my marriage. I need you in my school I need you in my work, in my career. I need you in my parenting. I need you in my relationships. I need you with my extended family. I need you in my witness. I need you to breathe. Father, would you bless us with that kind of posture? Because we know you are gracious to us. And we know you respond to a prayer of need always with provision. So with that in mind, we continue to pray this prayer, Lord, I need you. And we pray it in the name of our Savior upon whose grace we stand in Jesus' name.